Welcome to Rights Up Right Now, a podcast from the Oxford Human Rights Hub. I'm Kira Allman. This episode is part of a special series funded by the British Academy on human rights and the sustainable development goals. I'm talking to Olivier de Schutter, a professor of human rights law at the University of Louvain, Belgium, and a member of the Committee on Economic, Social, and Cultural Rights at the United Nations. In September 2015, the UN adopted a set of goals to end poverty, protect the planet, and ensure prosperity for all people. These are the UN Sustainable Development Goals, to be realized by 2030. The Sustainable Development Goals replace and build on the Millennium Development Goals, which were established in 2000, with targets set for 2015. By 2015, many of those targets had not been met, leading to a global reevaluation of the goals. The Sustainable Development Goals make some important changes to the development agenda, which we'll get into in this episode. One significant update is that they make an overt commitment to human rights for the first time. It's a declaration that economic development cannot proceed without protecting and advancing human rights. Moreover, human rights law might contribute to a more effective realization of the goals. But how to integrate human rights into development agendas remains an open question. What will the relationship between human rights and the Sustainable Development Goals look like in practice? Development goals and human rights differ in important ways. Development goals are policy aspirations. Human rights are binding legal obligations. Development can be realized in the aggregate for whole countries or communities, but human rights guarantee individuals certain inviolable protections. They demand that the individual be counted. In this episode, I'm talking to Olivier de Schutter, a human rights lawyer and development expert about what human rights law can contribute to the debate around the realization of the UN Sustainable Development Goals. Before we get started, I just want to go over a couple acronyms you'll hear a lot in this interview. We talk about the Millennium Development Goals, the MDGs, and the Sustainable Development Goals, the SDGs. I know that's a lot of DGs, but hopefully it won't be too confusing as we're talking about them. Okay, here we go. Olivier, thanks so much for being part of this special series we're doing on the Sustainable Development Goals. My pleasure. Thank you. You're a human rights lawyer. You served as the UN Special Rapporteur on the Right to Food. And now you're a member of the Committee on Economic, Social and Cultural Rights at the UN. So how did you wind up working in particular on the intersection of human rights law and economic development? When you work on rights such as the right to food and more generally on economic and social rights, it's impossible not to be struck by two factors. First, the impact of economic globalization on the ability of states to realize economic and social rights. Over the past 40 years, since the early 1980s, in fact, um, states have lowered the barriers to trade and investment. They've been competing with one another to attract investment, and that, in many cases, has made it more difficult for the weakest states to make progress in the realization of economic, uh, social, and cultural rights. And secondly, um, you cannot not be struck by the impacts that the depletion of resources and um, uh, global warming, climate change, shall have and is already having, in fact, on 
uh, economic and social rights, particularly um, access to resources, um, uh, the right to food, the right to water, um, shall be severely impacted uh, and tested in the future by these developments. And so as a human rights lawyer working on these issues, um, I, I gradually came to work much more with economists, with agronomists and with uh, climate specialists and, and trying to understand at the intersection of sustainable development and human rights, uh, how they could mutually support each other. And based on those conversations that you've had over many years, what are the overarching conclusions you've come away with? How can human rights inform development agendas? Well, it is very um, striking that the governments would do a much better job at um, targeting their efforts and designing uh, adequate policies both to uh, prevent uh, certain negative developments and to remedy them once these developments do occur if they consulted more systematically with the population and if participation in shaping designing policies were more effective that is true for example when governments negotiate trade agreements or investment treaties um, and it's very important that they develop human rights impact assessments, not just uh, in the hands of experts, but also by consulting with those who might be affected by the impacts of such agreements being negotiated. And in the area of climate change, for example, uh, mitigation and adaptation strategies have particularly important impacts on the groups of the population that depend on resources for their livelihoods. So consulting with them to understand which obstacles they face, how they could be affected, which are the survival strategies that they put in place that could be better supported by, by public authorities is essential for adequate responses to be designed. So democracy, democracy participation, consultation are ingredients for sound decision making in these areas uh, because the science of experts is not sufficient and not a substitute for, for listening to people. That consultation process that you've described, is that something that human rights contribute to the realization of these goals in particular? I think it is the specific contribution of human rights lawyers to focus on the need for greater empowerment, uh, participation um, and capacity building in order to allow the rights holders to exercise their rights effectively. Because in the development area, for many years, um, the mindset that dominated was one of technocracy-driven solutions uh, that experts decided uh, to, to design and implement, and governments were listening to those experts without uh, really taking the, the time and the effort to, to listen to the population's uh, demands. And so it is certainly um, in this area that the mutual fertilization between human rights experts and development uh, experts uh, can be the most productive. Okay, so let's take a step back for a moment to talk about the big picture. The Sustainable Development Goals are replacing their predecessor, the Millennium Development Goals. What are the differences between the Millennium Development Goals and the Sustainable Development Goals? I believe the, the, the three major differences that represent significant progress of the SDGs over the uh, Millennium Development Goals 
um, are in the following areas. First of all, the SDGs are very clear about the need for sustainable development to be a priority, not only in the global south, to support development pathways that are sustainable in developing countries, but also in the north. And there is an insistence, for example, in the SDGs on sustainable consumption, when for many years, the uh, lifestyles in affluent countries uh, were not questioned and were actually presented as the model to be um, pursued um, by by developing countries themselves. Now we've realized that the types of lifestyles we've developed in in rich countries are simply not sustainable and are having an impact on the depletion of resources, on global warming, etc. That is completely um, um, uh, unsustainable. That's a major progress. Secondly, there's an insistence in the SDGs on reducing inequalities both within countries and between countries. That is very important because in more, e more unequal societies, it requires far more growth to reduce poverty so that the ecological impact of economic growth is much more um, um, significant uh, given that you need more economic growth to to support um, uh, the, the poverty reduction strategies. And in more unequal societies, moreover, consumption is fueled by the desire of the less well-positioned groups within society to imitate the lifestyles um, of the better positioned groups. So there's a, there's a permanent race for consuming more, um, what Thorsten Veblen called conspicuous consumption, um, uh, consumption that is driven by the search for status, if you wish, um, and that is much less present in more equal societies. So the fight against inequalities is really key um, in in um, um, moving towards sustainable development. Third and finally, the sustainable development goals are explicit about the need to have uh, societies in which accountability, participation, the rule of law are taken into account. Um, and that is a recognition of the fact that in the NDGs, the process was not sufficiently informed by, by human rights considerations. And it was very much a top-down rather than a bottom-up process. And this is something that the SDGs are trying to remedy today. It's clear that human rights have been incorporated into the SDGs in order to create a synergy between rights and economic development. Was there a tension between human rights and development goals before under the MDGs? Did you experience that in any way? Well, the Millennium Development Goals had set certain targets, um, very often of a quantitative nature, that were not perceived as, as consistent with uh, the requirements of human rights. For example, uh, by mentioning that um, the proportion of hungry people uh, should be um, uh, should be divided by by two uh, between two thousand between 1990 actually, which was the the, the, the departure date, and, and 2015, when the right to food is to protect each and every individual against uh, against hunger, and in principle should um, allow to hold governments accountable for uh, not reacting in the face. Um, continuous hunger and malnutrition. And more generally, um, the Millennium Development Goals were seen as a mandate given to development agencies and to governments in the Global South 
to do certain things for the population, but without there being any requirements that the population itself um, co-design solutions and um, be given an opportunity to voice certain concerns about the priorities as they are chosen. So um, the Millennium, Millennium Development Goals were not particularly well received by the human rights community, and there were various reactions, for example, from the special procedures of the Human Rights Council or from the Committee on Economic, Social and Cultural Rights at the time, emphasizing that the NDGs would be much more effectively fulfilled if accountability tools were built into the implementation process um, in order to force governments to basically um, uh, deliver on the promises that they made. Um, no such um, uh, accountability mechanisms were established, and as a result, um, NDGs were or were not fulfilled um, based on the government's good goodwill, but without any ability for the population to really pressure the governments to, to deliver. That's an interesting point, that the invocation of human rights makes some of these development demands more binding on states. That's the very point of anchoring development goals and human rights. It is to impose a very high political costs on governments um, if they do not fulfill their promises. And it is to oblige governments um, not simply to do things what they happen to be able to do at some point in time and, and believe should be done for the benefit of the population, but to force them to, um, uh, to discuss the priorities they, they, they choose uh, to implement uh, with the the groups concerned. Um, if we do not have this safeguard, we will find that some groups, women, ethnic minorities, the elderly, children, for example, shall be um, um, underprivileged and shall not benefit from overall progress measured by indicators, for example, that refer to the population as a whole. Um, and we also will not be able to um, oblige governments to um, uh, uh, to systematically learn from their mistakes uh, by receiving feedback feedback from their population. Um, you know, democracy, participation, accountability are also tools to allow to improve public policies because the mistakes shall not be, shall not go unnoticed. And on the contrary, um, mistaken policies shall be uh, redesigned uh, if they have not been successful. So far, we've talked a lot about how human rights law might contribute to a more democratic and binding realization of development goals. But what about the other way around? Do the SDGs lend something to human rights? The Sustainable Development Goals were endorsed by the General Assembly on, on 25th of September 2015, and they are now widely referred to in countries and, and regions. Many countries have adopted have adopted sustainable development goals, action plans to implement them. And therefore, they are um, a very useful um, reference that human rights lawyers can use in order to pressure governments to, to deliver on these promises, um, which will contribute to the progressive realization of economic um, and social rights in particular. So um, some branches of government are more sensitive to the SDGs than they have been, uh, whether we like this or not, to the international commitments of the state in the area of human rights. Maybe this is because um, um, of the fact that SDGs feel less threatening to governments because they are 
if you wish, endorsed uh, at universal level as a as a balanced package of promises uh, linking developing countries to developed countries, um, rather than forcing the government to um, provide certain goods or services to the population as as human rights in principle should uh, oblige governments to do. Um, but in any case, they are certainly a very useful reference point for, for human rights lawyers to, to invoke um, in order to accelerate progress towards realizing rights such as right to education, the right to food, uh, the right to housing, and so forth. Do people have a right to economic and social development? In 1986, the UN General Assembly proclaimed the right to development. And at the time, it was seen as having to guide um, development efforts in a human rights-based uh, direction, if you wish. Um, but the right to development over the past uh, 40 years has been um, largely um, um, uh, undermined by ideological controversies about its content and by disagreements about the various indicators and criteria that would allow to monitor its progress. Um, and I believe it is now high time that we um, uh, rejuvenate the right to development. Um, and what it means, in fact, the right to development is that in making the fundamental choices about the direction that societies should take, about public investments, about uh, uh, which kind of um, um, opening to international trade and investment, about which kind of uh, um, development pathways to follow, governments should involve people, um, set as their priorities to support the poorest and most marginalized segments within society, and be driven by, by an approach that is not guided simply by a concern for the growth of uh, GDP per capita. Um, economic growth may be important in poor countries, but it's, it's certainly not to be seen as an end in itself. The quality of growth, uh, the, the human development dimension of growth is uh, far more important than the quantitative increase of wealth. Um, and that is the key message that seems sometimes to have been forgotten. Um, now, whether the right to development, as I've described it, is uh, justiciable, in other terms, can be um, invoked before um, courts or quasi-judicial bodies, is, of course, um, uh, not obvious at all. What can be invoked are rights, such as the right to food, the right to water, the right to education, um, the right to, uh, to health. And all these rights have been tested before courts, increasingly are understood as justiciable, and uh, um, expert bodies and, and judicial bodies are now far better equipped to protect these rights than they were so in, in the 1980s. Um, but the right to development as such has something specific to add. Um, it, it sends a specific message to governments about which priorities they should give themselves. Is this an area of human rights law that's likely to expand or develop going forward? Are we likely to see, for instance, litigation on a right to development or anything like that? I believe the right to development can be um, rejuvenated, revitalized um, by the progress of international human rights law in two ways. First of all, international human rights law has now grown to acknowledge the existence of 
extraterritorial human rights obligations imposed on states. This means that states not only owe human rights to their populations or to people under their jurisdiction, they also should ensure that they do not negatively impact human rights outside their uh, territories and outside uh, their jurisdiction. So, for example, in their trade and um, investment policies, in their um, development policies, um, they should take into account the human rights of populations that are not under their control. And this is one area in which um, human rights in recent years have made progress, and that could allow the right to development to be given given greater um, relevance, including in um, judicial settings. A second uh, dimension of human rights that can be extremely relevant um, uh, today, and that has made progress um, in recent years, is the duty of international cooperation. In other terms, a duty of states to um, um, join efforts to search together for collective solutions to common problems that have a transnational dimensions um, by negotiating inter alia new treaties or entering into new uh, partnerships. Um, human rights are not simply something that each state should strive towards individually. They're also an objective that all states should work together to, to realizing by joint action when necessary. And this is a dimension of human rights that, again, has been quite um, invisible until very recently, but now is uh, making swift progress. And I believe that this is another um, contribution that human rights can make to resurrecting the right to development. You've made some interesting points, I think, about the different ways that human rights law is perceived politically in comparison to the SDGs. How important is that in terms of the ways that the SDGs will be realized going forward? When we speak about human rights, we speak about uh, machinery that exists both at national domestic level and at international level that should be able to enforce those rights by receiving claims from rights holders. And governments in this context are duty bearers. Um, they are not the only duty bearers, but they are the most important and primary duty bearers. And so they have good reasons to fear the rhetorics of human rights and them being used as tools by NGOs and, and individuals in order to hold them accountable. Um, this is why the Sustainable Development Goals are less perceived as threatening by governments, because the Sustainable Development Goals, of course, are monitored by development agencies and by the high-level political forum that meets every year in July to take stock of progress and receive reports from governments about what they've achieved. But this is a peer review mechanism that is not quite as threatening to governments as, for example, constitutional courts might be or as um, human rights bodies uh, established in, in the UN machinery um, might might be. So human rights are different because they include um, uh, an ability for these mechanisms to hold governments accountable. But that's precisely why they are precious and important. It, uh, it is important to strengthen the SDGs by reference to human rights because it will make governments more accountable, allowing independent bodies, judicial bodies, non-judicial bodies, to demand from governments that they make progress at the best speed they can, mobilizing the resources they can mobilize to that end um, in order to deliver on the promises contained in the SDGs. 
So we talked a little about how one of the updates to the Millennium Development Goals that we see reflected in the Sustainable Development Goals is the inclusion of developed countries. So these goals apply to all countries, regardless of their development status. So how have EU member states tried to accommodate the SDGs so far? The EU as, a, as an institution, as an, as an organization, as well as the EU member states, um, are doing their best to demonstrate uh, that they are acting upon the SDGs in good faith and they are adopting sustainable development goals, action plans uh, to uh, try to um, guide uh, the decisions they take in this regard. But frankly, until we change our way of measuring progress and indeed our way of defining happiness and felicity, we shall not um, uh, be able to make um, uh, much uh, progress towards uh, moving to a more sustainable um, uh, society. Today, governments and the EU remain mobilized by uh, the growth of uh, uh, GDP per capita. That is um, uh, what is seen as the only way forward um, as a means to uh, continue to create employment and to expand wealth. but that is increasingly in tension with the commitment not to further um, uh, destroy the environment, uh, the very precious uh, natural resource base on which we depend. And the little progress we are making in moving towards greater sustainability is completely annulled by the growth of the volumes of trade that essentially allows um, EU countries to import from developing countries large amounts of goods um, that are produced uh, in conditions that are highly polluting and, and destroying the environment so that the EU country member states can, can, can say that they are making progress and reducing the ecological footprint. But in fact, it's simply because they are outsourcing the most polluting uh, types of production from the EU and, and delegating that to, to developing countries. So I am personally extremely pessimistic. I believe if we do not change our way of measuring progress, if we do not define for ourselves a different um, um, uh, magical number uh, that would be based on well-being, uh, health, uh, rather than on GDP growth, uh, we shall we shall remain stuck in the current paradigm. Could human rights law inform a new paradigm? Does does that make a new paradigm more likely? We cannot continue to by our way out of problems always by continuously stimulating economic growth. I think that's an illusion we have inherited from the. Uh, 1950s and 60s, and it's now high time that we indeed give ourselves uh, uh, different objectives and hopefully quantifiable objectives, both because this helps monitoring and because this uh, appeals to the imagination and allows a public debate to take place on the impacts of our choice on that magical number that we still have to define. Now, I believe human rights can serve that purpose uh, by contributing to Um, the definition of an indicator of well-being that could be based on human rights indicators uh, that we have in the areas of the right to food, the right to health, the right to housing, uh, the right to education, for example. Um, And one um, integrated 
indicator that could take into account these different dimensions of well-being um, could become a substitute for GDP growth and become what is actually discussed during electoral campaigns, um, the number on which governments' performances should be judged. Um, I think that is very important. But the magic of the single number that GDP growth is, um, we have to we have to remember is one that is very difficult to um, uh, to compete with. So we need one metric of progress that is a substitute to, to GDP growth. And I believe human rights can be a source of inspiration to defining that metric. So this sounds primarily like a political problem to me. The magic number is a useful political tool that would be pretty hard to replace rhetorically. Indeed, numbers are useful in particular discussions because they allow to rank countries, they allow to assess uh, government's performances, and they can easily be used in public debate uh, to to um, to ensure that uh, um, democracy can can function correctly. Um, and for the moment, the number around which most discussions revolve is GDP growth, and that must change. And I believe the SDGs are one important um, reason why a discussion on how we measure progress should now commence. Uh, but that discussion is is low is slow at developing, and and I think it's it's high time that we accelerate that discussion. Well, thanks so much, Olivier, for joining me in this episode. Uh, it's been great to talk to you. You're welcome. Thanks, Kira. Bye. Rights Up Right Now is a podcast from the Oxford Human Rights Hub. This is a special series on the Sustainable Development Goals, and it's funded by the British Academy. Rights Up is produced by me, Kira Allman, and music for this series is by Rosemary Allman. Subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or follow us on SoundCloud.